I recognize most faces, but those of you who don't know me, I'm Sarah, and I'm a deacon here at Forefront. I, um, I do a bunch of things. I help lead a small group in Brooklyn Heights. I, I'm going to take my glasses off to the glare. It's too much. Um, help co-lead our LGBTQ ministry, queer communion. Actually, we're going to be collaborating or organizing a march in Pride at the end of June. So if you're interested, come talk to me or email queercommunion at gmail.com. So um, I want to talk today about something that might be a little bit provocative, for lack of a better word. Um, but I just want to give you a heads up. The first half of the sermon will be a lot of history. And the second half will be a lot of Bible. So if you're wondering where the Bible is, just hold on a little bit to the second half. But actually, I want to start with some personal history. So this is a picture of my great aunt. She is the younger sister of my mom's father. Her name is Gan Ankyat. And so Auntie Gan was the youngest of 13 children. And she was the only one who got a college education. She was the most educated. She went to school in NUS in Singapore, National University of Singapore. Um, she um, spoke Chinese and in university actually became kind of radicalized. She uh, joined the Communist Party uh, in Singapore and Malaysia. She moved back to my home state in Malaysia, Sarawak, um, where she became a school teacher. And she was a mom. She grew up in the same home as, you know, like 10 families all in one home kind of thing. Um, my mom remembers she would take her students out to uh, host parties or bring them to bookstores and give them like communist propaganda. And she was so involved that she actually quit her job. Um, she was in her late 20s or early 30s, around some of our ages. Uh, quit her job and uh, became a sort of a full-time communist guerrilla. So the communist uh, guerrilla force um, began initially as an opposition towards the British colonizers. And then when Malaysia got independence, they were fighting the Malaysian government along with like Western foreign intervention. This is the 1950s and the 60s um, to establish a communist republic. And so I'd imagine, and I wasn't there obviously, but the, when she probably announced it to her family that she was leaving, she was gonna fight in the jungle. A lot of people were like, what's going on? Um, you know, it, it was like, you know, the communists were like a small little tiny force. It was mostly Chinese, Mal and Chinese are a minority in Malaysia. So most people probably thought it was a fool's errand. What were you thinking? Um, and in May 1972, she was killed in the jungle. My family found out by reading a newspaper headline, actually, that uh, mentioned her death. And the way her story has always been told to me, so I've never met her, is like, what a waste of life. You know, such great potential, such bright prospects. She was the most educated. She was brainwashed uh, by the communists and it's like manipulated by these leaders. And in fact, the year after her death, they, there was a peace truce and most of the fighting ceased. Um, and it certainly is like a very tragic thing. But as I've grown older, I guess I've just become a little bit more curious about her life. I mean, she was fairly educated. so. The idea that she was brainwashed, she, you know, she wasn't exactly a teenager. She had some like probably rational reasons or thought, thought out reasons at the very least for what she was doing. So I, became, I started doing more research in the past few years, like trying to learn more about the history and why and the fighting. And from what I can kind of gather, it's, you know, she was most likely, she and her comrades, uh, were most likely fighting for a vision of equity in which there was an upper class and a lower class, people who owned land and people who had to work off the land. I think a vision of racial equity as well. Um, the Malaysian government at the time and still does favor Malays over other races, um, which is a direct result of the British colonial legacy. 
And she was, I think, fighting also for a certain kind of autonomy, independence, um, because my home state is very separate, actually, from the west of Malaysia, and, and we're suspicious about joining this larger um, kind of like state. And so what's crazy to me is that this vision she had in her head that compelled her to leave her job, leave her family, leave like physical safety. I mean, the jungle is not a nice place to be, a lot of mosquitoes. Um, this vision that she had and her and her comrades had did not exist. Like there was no example of, that they could point to and say like, this is what we wanna do. Um, it was all in their heads. It was all in their beliefs, it was in their faith, it was in their imagination. And the kind of the theme of the sermon I wanna talk about today is how imagination can act as a form of resistance, um, as a way to force us to question the status quo. Now, I'm sure many of you or some of you wouldn't agree with a political ideology. I'm not here to sell communism or whatnot, uh, if you're listening uh, up there. <laughs> Trump. Uh, but, the, uh, but, but, but I think I'm more interested in the principles and the moral convictions that underlie her ideology, and that's kind of one I want to focus on a little bit more. Oh. Um, Maybe that was a sign. At the end of the day, I think I find her story inspiring because, I mean, obviously back in the day, you know, communism and capitalism were sort of active um, options that people were debating. But today, I think, for the most part, we take it more or less for granted. And I think the biggest idols in our lives are idols that we don't even notice exist, that they're so all-encompassing, so def definitive, so equated with reality that we fail to question or even imagine an alternative to. Maybe a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, maybe that that thing, the idol, was slavery. You know, we just thought obviously that some people were unequal and meant to serve, and some people were not. And then we figured out that maybe that, that's not true. Or maybe it was women, and the idea that women were property, or just childbearers, and inferior versions of men. That was just like a thing. No one even bothered to question it until like pretty, pretty recently in like human history. So I guess what is our current blind spot today? You know, what will we look back 100 years, and a thousand years from now and be like, oh wow, I can't believe no one like said anything. It could be a lot of things, but for today I would like to try the idea that maybe that thing is capitalism. So there's a quote by Frederick Jameson. Um, it says that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. It's a, it's a, uh, excited. This is a provocative sermon, so just hold on, bear with me for a little bit. Uh, I understand this is scary, and it's like, what is Sarah doing? She's pushing some sort of agenda. I get it. Um, but, I, you know, we're in this Imagine series, and I think we're trying to reimagine what a, look, what's a new society might look like, right? Justice might look like, what church might look like, in light of our faith and our tradition. And I think if we dig into the texts and our history of our faith, what we find might be a little bit surprising. Because Christianity is, actually predates the origins of capitalism. And there's some of the stuff we have in our tradition um, actually challenges our current economic status quo and actually forces us, I think, to imagine new alternatives. So I can, a lot of examples, but I'll just pick one in the book of Leviticus. Um, and this is repeated in Deuteronomy in a different way. God says, um, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not, glasses on, uh, reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not pick your vineyard bare, or gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger, I am the Lord your God. So this is a verse, on one face of it could just be about, about sharing. You know, you have a lot of stuff, give a little bit to other people. But I think if we dig a bit more into the implications, um, it seems like maybe the Bible is saying a bit, something a bit more radical. 
you know, the text, imagine if you're a landowner and you're told, you know, don't glean everything, don't pick all the fruit. You might be thinking, I, I planted the seed, you know, I plowed the soil, I chased off the wild animals, I have a right to this fruit, this is my property. The Bible seems to say, actually, that's, that's not quite true, it's God's property. And God is telling you that the community has a right to some of it. The poor and the stranger actually have a right to some of what you have which is a, a bit more of a radical message. Um, and the early church fathers actually, next slide, have some pretty interesting things to say as well. Um, you are not making a gift of your possession to the poor person. You are handing over to him what is his. This is Bishop Ambrose of Milan, in four, around 400 CE. Archbishop uh, John Chrysostom of Constantinople says, not to enable the poor to share in our goods is to steal from them and deprive them of life. The goods we possess are not ours, but theirs. So this is not like it's good to share, it's like actually you are stealing by not giving. And it's a pretty radical message, and there's some historical context there in terms of like the church was responding to like a real accumulation of wealth as Christianity went from like a tiny thing to like empire thing. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to like preach a literalism or anything like that, but it is interesting that this is part of our tradition. And I think some of what they say seems a little crazy, it seems like, whoa, where is this coming from? But I guess I like to just note that the invention of private property is actually a pretty modern thing. That this attitude maybe is something that's older and has lasted longer than our current idea of property. So for millennia, actually, most people, you know, you would have certain you know, territories marked out to certain tribes or communities, but land was not necessarily a commodity thing that you would buy and sell, and now you have the rights to it, you can do what you want. And in fact, in, even just in Europe, um, farmers would have their own stuff plus, but then there will also be the commons of what academics would call, which is this pasture land where anyone could bring their animals to come in and feed and graze, and, and they would kind of manage it as a community. So if someone like brought in too many cows, they'd be like, okay, hold on, like maybe just a few cows next time. Um, and they're kind of regulating and this kind of how it went for a long time. And then uh, due to a bunch of factors, which I'm not a historian, I don't know, the wealthy landowners started kicking out the peasants and building fences and enclosing acts. They're called the Enclosure Acts in Britain uh, that happened in the 1800s. Um, and those peasants ended up going to urban cities and forming the backbones of the Industrial Revolution, the factories. And that's around the time that property rights start becoming invented. And then, so fast forward a little bit, and these Europeans now, with their idea of property rights, go to places like Africa, Asia, and America. And you know, when they live, when they come to America in our country, you know, they do a lot of things with the Native Americans. But one of the things they do is they ask to buy land. They say, "Okay, let's do some trade." And although, from what I understand, the Native Americans do have a sense of like demarcation of territory by tribe, land for them was a communal thing. It wasn't something you could just, it wasn't a commodity. So this is an excerpt of a letter from Chief Seattle um, of a tribe to President Franklin Pierce in 1885, who asked to buy land. And he says, how can you buy or sell the sky, the warmth of the land? The idea is strange to us, yet we do not own the freshness of the air or the sparkle of the water. How can you buy them from us? And I think, I've listed, probably given you a little bit of an overload in terms of quotes and history, but I think one of the reasons why these statements feel a little jarring, perhaps, 
is that I would say capitalism has deadened our imagination such that we've just accepted that these are the way things are. And we don't bother to question or envision that maybe there's an alternative way to conceive of land, to conceive of property transactions. And I think when I think of, to bring it currently to where we are today, a lot of conversations I have with people, uh, you know, like fellow woke peers and what have you, uh, sometimes are about like gentrification. And, you know, it depends how the conversation goes, but a lot of times people talk about it as if it's like describing a law of gravity. You know, if, you know, as you know how supply and demand works, like poor people are going to get priced out. That's just how things are. And um, this is how the economic laws turn and landlords have the right to do what they want. They can raise the rent in their building. That's just kind of the way things are. I'm not saying it's good or bad, it's just how things are. And there's kind of like fatalistic resignation to things. Um, and... But, you know, that's just not necessarily the case. Um, even as recently as today, and we're not talking about hundreds of years of history, but there's an emerging movement called the Community Land Trust. Um, in East Harlem, for instance, there's a, a homeless advocacy group called Picture the Homeless that's trying to, that has gotten government funding to purchase a few properties in East Harlem, renovate them, and turn them into affordable housing for people who otherwise would be homeless. Uh, with government subsidies. And the, and the owners of those buildings would not be you know, some real estate company or uh, an individual, but actually a board that would consist of people from the community. And it would be sort of governed by the community for the community. And it would be property taken off the real estate market. So that's an example, right, of like an alternative way of imagining things. Um, another example I can think of is in Chinatown, there are these group of tenants. Some of you who follow my Facebook probably know I've been a little obsessed. Um, there, uh, there are these group, 20 or so families, like a lot of them are elderly, some of them are parents, a lot of them are young children, really span the gamut. They've been living in this rent-stabilized building in Chinatown, 85 Bowery, for many years, most of them. And the landlord has been trying to evict them, uh, first through kind of indirect means, like not fixing water leaking between floors, not fixing like uneven and unstable staircases, trying to get them to leave because um, if so, then he can renovate it and charge like five times the rent because of the location. And they've stuck on, you know, they've tried to get him to do changes, nothing happens, the government's not doing anything. And this past January, oh, by the way, what I've described is actually very common, it happens to a lot of people and it happens to people in our congregation even. Um, this past January, the landlord successfully got the Department of Buildings to issue a vacate order. The tenants had two hours to pick up and pack all their belongings and leave. For two weeks, they were in an emergency shelter with like rats and stuff going on. And, but what's, I think, most impressive about these tenants, I mean, they don't really speak English. Most of them are pretty uneducated, fairly, like work in service industry or work in the restaurant industry, uh, home health aides. Um, they are, in many ways, they could have said, okay, this is just the way things are. You know, we, we don't have power in the city. Uh, we don't really speak the language, so I guess we just gotta figure out what's next. But they've organized. They've really banded together. They've held public rallies outside of city buildings. They've worked with different organizations in the city to host boycotts of the landlord's apparel stores. He, he, the stores are Dr. J's, which is in the Bronx and Brooklyn. They've held a hunger strike in January, which got a lot of press, and they're holding another one this Wednesday at 11 a.m. in City Hall. And they're not going quietly into the night. Um, they are, you know, in some ways very much disrupting the status quo. And through their resistance and refusal to accept that this is just the way things have to be, they're, I think, inspiring my imagination and the imagination of people around them to say, whoa, okay, all right, so this is possible, you can do this. And they actually have just got the landlord to agree, uh, and 
a few months ago, got the landlord to agree to pay for a hotel so they could live in there while um, waiting to be housed, which is like a first time, a bit unprecedented. So I guess all of this, and just this is the Bible part now. <laughs> um, I think one of the most disruptive, speaking of disruptive acts, that I see in the Bible is the day of Pentecost, which we talked about last week, and Jonathan gave a great sermon on how you know, God poured the Holy Spirit onto their disciples while they were praying, and they started speaking in multiple languages, this whole shebang, and you listened to the sermon last week for like the deeper meaning of it. And what's interesting is that Pentecost coincides with a Jewish holiday around the same time called Shavuot. And Shavuot commemorates um, the giving of the Torah from God through Moses to Israel. And it's significant not just because like, you know, it's a pretty significant revelation of God, but also because these laws shape and define how Israel is going to live and be formed as a community. It's, it's their identity marker. So the question is, in the day of Pentecost, when God pours her spirit onto people, how is the community shaped and defined? You know, how are they changed? Like, what happens to them? And Luke, right after narrating Pentecost, kind of does this little zoom out, and he describes what happens to the community. And he says um, in the book of Acts, all, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and good and distributed them to all as any had need. And maybe this is, I think, kind of the most incredulous thing that I read in Acts. I mean, the healing of the lame, rising of the dead is like pretty cool. Uh, but this is like you know, people were, what, selling stuff to people who had need. Um, they had all things in common. Is this like, is this an, like a fabrication? Is this real? Like what's going on here? And I think what makes me take this verse maybe a bit more seriously is um, a few days, a few chapters later, Luke describes a similar thing. The disciples are praying in one room. Holy Spirit comes and it says that the room was shaken. And in Luke, there's this thing where he does another zoom out thing. So it's like, okay, now I'm going to describe what happens to the community. In Acts 4, it says, Now the company of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that, that any of the things that which he possessed was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. The bolding is mine. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made to each as any had need. So there's a lot to unpack, but two things from there. One, um, there was not a needy person among them. So think about it, when they you know, did the selling possessions and they pulled the money, they didn't distribute it based on merit. Right? They didn't say, okay, who has the most potential in our society to like, be productive? They didn't say, okay, well, I get your financial need, but you need to show me proof that you're on the way to getting a job, then I'll give you money. Uh, it was just like, you have need, we give it. It was an economy based on grace and not on merit. And the second thing, which is, I think is striking to me, is that no one said that any of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Property, essentially, was common and not private. So to my mind, the miracle I see here is not necessarily the fact that people were sharing and giving and having common possessions. Because to be honest, like, we see that happen in our communities, in our families. Like, you know, um, like in my family, for instance, when my dad got his first job, he gave 30% uh, of his income after taxes, as he would like to remind, uh, to his mom because she was raising five kids by herself, uh, more or less. His dad died somewhere uh, in his 20s, and that's what he did it. And then when the next kid graduated and got a job, they did it for the family and that sort of. And it started really with my grandma. Uh, when she, my dad's mom, when she was about to go to university, she did, made the choice to 
not forgo the money that would have been required for her to go to university, and instead got a job as a teacher and earned enough money to pay for a younger sister's ability to go to the university. And that's how actually my family still does things. It's slightly modified scale, but when I got a job, I gave uh, probably about 10% of my income to my parents. Also, I was living at home at the time so I could pay off student loans. And then my sister did the same thing. And now that we've moved out and we have rent to pay, we don't do the same, but we still contribute on a yearly basis to my youngest sister who's still in college uh, education. And I get it, you know, I, my family's not, my money's not really my own, it's my family's as well. Like they supported me, they raised me, and I would do the same for my partner. I'll do the same for my friends who are close to me at least. Um, and because this is what it means in some ways to like be joined together, right, in love with each other. So I think the miracle is that, is that this phenomenon I'm describing occurs to people outside of the family, like outside of your friend group, outside of people you like and love and hang out with. And keep in mind, this community is being, it's growing daily. Like people are being added to daily. Like anyone could walk through the door. Like they could speak a different language. It could be like someone who bullied you in second grade. Like it could be anyone. And yet to be like the sharing thing had to apply to them as well. Which is, I guess makes me think that the real revolution here, it, it is a revolution of money and possessions and property, but it's also a revolution of our consciousness to expand that kind of circle of concern, circle of love to strangers in, in essence. Um, and I think if you look at, what should I think? Oh yes, that's a slide, okay. And William James Jennings is a black theologian who comments on this. He says, the Israelites in some ways were used to the idea of sacrificing some of their stuff and possessions to the altar. Like you bring every year, bring the stuff to God or whatnot, and that's for the community slash God. But in this case, the altar was not made out of gold or silver, but made out of human bodies. They were giving not to the temple, but to each other. And so, he makes the point that really the possessions thing is almost like an afterthought. What was really happening was this union of bodies and spirits and souls. And then what followed was money and possessions. And money was used, he says, money is traditionally used to divide people. In this case, money was used to bring people closer together. So I think to bring back that verse uh, again, the sequence is probably significant. It says, now a full number of those who believe were one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So there's this internal change happening maybe before or simultaneously with this external change. And it reminds me of this quote by um, actually a, a Buddhist teacher named Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, who says, um, without interchange, there can be no outer change. Without collective change, no change matters. Actually, I think it should be collective instead of outer, but you get the point. Um, to my mind, if I think about what does an inner and external change look like for our church? Like what, there are so many different possibilities of how this could play out. You know, one possibility if we wanted to play out this sort of acts kind of literally would be if we like sold our possessions on eBay and like gave the funds to church and the church had a kind of like a safety net fund for people who maybe lost their job and needed health insurance for a bit or who had a big emergency bill or medical bill or whatnot and needed like some money to tie them over. In fact, statistically, a service of most low-income poor people, what they need is not necessarily uh, more money, although that would be great, but actually consistent money and money that's predictable, that, that you know, when they have a big bill, they have the money to meet it. Because if, if you're just week to week and you have a big bill, also that triggers spirals of debt. So timing is really important. Um, so these, you know, there are so many ways we could think about this, and I think one of my goals with the Imagine campaign and series is that 
you know, us as church, we do help people regularly, weekly, when people come and ask for money. I would love to raise enough money so we could expand that, programmatize that, make that an official thing we could talk about and like share about. And I know I think next service we're having a baby dedication. I'm sure there are parents here who are thinking about what kind of community and what kind of context they want to raise their children in. And I'd like us to imagine what would it be like if we were a community that dared to imagine answers to problems that many have lost the ability to even question. Uh, what would it be like to be a community that causes us to expand our circle of consciousness and love to those beyond who look like us, who are related to us, who we like, who we agree with? I mean, I think a church that really embarks on a revolution of our consciousness. And I think this is a call of our faith. So I'm going to pray. Dear Father, Mother, Son, Spirit, thank you for challenging me in my uh, stinginess and calculativeness and uh, fear of loss um, and scarce and my clinging on to scarcity. Thank you for challenging my and our collective imagination as to what is possible on an individual, um, interpersonal, and also a systemic level. I pray that, um, yeah, the seeds of what you've laid upon us through your texts and through your tradition, our tradition, will continue to germinate and inspire conversation and new ways of imagining um, how, you know, how we can love others. Amen.